you would please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Well, I'm excited to continue our study of the book of Psalms today, and particularly excited about Psalm 63 which I find to be one of the most moving and profound chapters in the Bible. This is a psalm that many Christians in the early church would pray every day as part of their morning prayers to spiritually calibrate their souls. And we're going to talk about the whole psalm, but I especially plan today to focus on verse 1. If you could look at that verse with me again. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Today we're going to talk about what it means to have a thirsty soul. And what do you do when you have a thirsty soul? So everybody say, soul thirst. I feel even more acutely aware than usual this morning of our need for God's grace to fully grasp and understand and appropriate this passage of scripture. So I want to invite you to bow your heads with me and pray one more time. Please pray for me that God will help me as I communicate and pray for yourself that God will help you to hear his word. Our father in heaven, what a great privilege it is to be in this place gathered with such a wonderful company of friends with such a wonderful spiritual family that you, we've been united with you and with one another by grace through Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you as we sit under the authority of your word and try to meditate on your word this morning that we're entering into spiritual community with Christians all over the world and every continent and with saints who have gone before us in heaven, that we are part of a great cloud of witnesses. And as part of that community, we worship you. We say all glory be to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we say we need your help. Please forgive us of our sins. Instruct our minds and our hearts. Help us to be attentive. And as I said a moment ago, I pray now 
Would you help me to speak with clarity, with accuracy, with power from your spirit? And would you help all of us to hear your word with faith? Lord, we need this truth of this passage of scripture to grow mature and to grow wise today. So please help us in Jesus name. Amen. Well, this psalm is attributed to David and King David wrote the psalm when he was in a situation of great pain. The text itself makes that quite clear. Look at the second half of verse one, which we just read. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Now, that was literally true. David was in the wilderness when he wrote this psalm. But that's also true at a deeper symbolic level. A dry and weary land is a way of saying I'm in a horrible, painful situation. We learn a little bit more of that situation beginning in verse nine. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. It's clear from these verses that David is expecting God to rescue him. David knows God is going to intervene. He's going to save me and his justice. He's going to come rescue me from my foes. And yet in the present moment, people are trying to kill him. People are trying to seek his life. Because verse 10 indicates, excuse me, verse 11 indicates that David is already King David when he writes this psalm. Most Jews and Christians have believed David wrote this when he was fleeing is that even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his is that even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith that even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith that even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith and even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith in God, even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith in God, even though. David does ask God for help with this situation and he does express his faith in God, that his faith in God, that God will help him. Amazingly, David and the psalm are not focused primarily on the situation. They're not focused primarily on God rescue me. God fix my circumstances. The psalm is primarily about the soul and its relationship to God. Now, there's already an important spiritual lesson here. Some of you are in some really painful situations right now. Quite a few people in this room are going through some very painful situations. And if you're not right now, you probably were recently or will be soon. Because we live in a fallen world, don't we? There's lots of pain in the world. And I want you to hear two things today. First thing I want you to hear is that God cares about your situation. He cares about your circumstances. And one day when Jesus comes back, all those painful situations will be over and healed forever. Amen. And in the meantime, he answers a lot of prayers and helps us with our circumstances over and over in our lives. So I want you to hear that God cares about your circumstances. But I also want you to hear the second truth, which I think is indicated here in the passage, namely the state of your circumstances is not as important as the state of your soul. 
The status of your situation is not as important as the status of your soul's relationship to God. Three times in this passage, David talks about his soul. And every time he talks about his soul, he talks about his soul in relation to God. Verse one, my soul thirsts for you. Verse five, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. Then verse eight, my soul clings to you. David is concerned with the state of his soul. God is concerned with the state of your soul. And here in the psalm, we find the soul doing three things, thirsting for God, being satisfied with God and clinging to God. Now, to help us understand what this means, first of all, we've got to clarify some terms. The, the English word soul here is translating a Hebrew word, nephesh, which doesn't quite exactly mean the same thing that we probably think when we hear the word soul. So everybody say soul. When we hear the word soul in our cultural context, we tend to think of a ghosty spiritual part of ourself that is distinct from our body. And we might think of a cartoon when Sylvester the cat or somebody dies. Remember the little transparent part of him floats out of himself, has an out of body experience. And we think of that the soul as opposed to the body, the immaterial part of our soul, ourself. But the Hebrew word nephesh has a wider Meaning, the Hebrew word refers to the animating, integrating life force we receive from God, our creator. It refers to everything we are, our mind, our emotions, and even our bodies. As a matter of fact, it seems the most basic meaning of nephesh is neck. So if you're familiar with the story of Samson from the book of Judges, they put Samson at one point in chains and it says they chained his nephesh. Various times where people are literally physically thirsty, they're parched. They talk about their nephesh, their, their throat being parched. And it seems that that is one of the reasons why this term came to refer not just to the neck or to the body, but to who we are at, at the deep core of ourselves, which integrates all of who we are. We, we are, we are desiring people. We're loving people. We're thirsting people. So in the Song of Solomon, for example, the young woman, when she's speaking about her lover, says she, she calls him the one whom my nephesh loves. Emotionally, intellectually, physically, she longs for him. She loves him. And in many places, this word comes to be used especially for the soul's need for God. But it encompasses everything we are. So when we hear my soul thirsts for you, you can think everything I am, my, my intellect, my emotions, my body, my deepest desire thirsts for you, God. When you hear my soul will be satisfied in God, you can say everything I am is satisfied in God. When you hear my soul clings to God, everything I am, the integrating, animating life force in me that comes from God clings to God. That's what's being said here. It's also worth noting that characteristically, every time the soul is mentioned here, it's it's mentioned in relation to God, which should alert us to an important truth about who we are as human beings. We are relational beings. We're made for relationship and especially for relation with God. This might also help us to think about the relation what, to what Christians have traditionally called soul care to what counselors are frequently psychologists calling self-care right now. OK, everybody say soul care. 
Everybody say self-care. I want to clarify at the beginning of this little statement. I'm not anti-self-care. When counselors tell us to do self-care, pretty much everything they're saying that we should do is good. But the Christian tradition of talking about soul care, I would say, is a, a deeper way of talking about how do we steward the self. Because it not only includes all those things counselors tend to mean about self-care, but it, it, it thinks of us as relational beings. You see, in our contemporary cultural context, when we hear about the self, we think of an autonomous individual unit. But the Bible only knows a human self in relationship. And so the tradition, Christian tradition of soul care is about having a soul, not only that is means my body and mind and emotions are healthy and well integrated, but that I'm rightly related to people and especially rightly related to God. So this is a psalm that teaches us about soul care. Now, there's a lot that we can learn about our souls from this psalm. But as I said, I want to focus on verse one. So let's look at it one more time. And talk about the metaphor here. Oh, God, you are my God. That's David saying, creator of the universe. I know that you are the king and the maker of all things. But more than that, you're my God. I have a personal relationship with you. I'm trusting in your covenant love for you. You have heard my prayers and delivered me in the past. You're my savior. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. That could also be translated early. Will I seek you as in I'm going to get up early in the morning and pray. My soul thirsts for you. Now, that's the key metaphor. Everybody say soul thirst again. Soul thirst. Let's think about what does that mean? First of all, what is thirst? What is thirst? Well, your body needs water to live. As a matter of fact, you're mostly made up of water. If we dehydrated you, took all the water out of your body, you would fit into a little bucket. As well as, as a matter of fact, when I was driving here this morning... I had a flashback. I may mess up this reference because I didn't have a chance to research it. But anybody remember the old black and white Batman movie that kept saying kabam? This, I can tell this isn't going to land. Only Chauncey remembers this movie. <laughs> well, there was a part where one of the bad guys... Okay, thanks. I see that hand in the back, Lou. <laughs> uh, all right, we got three. Y'all going to relate to this. There's one of the bad guys. I think it's Penguin. He comes out with a dehydration gun and he zaps everybody. And they tur- all these, now they're a little puddle of... They're not a puddle. They're a little pile of dust on the ground, right? And I think, I don't remember what Batman does. He probably pulls some water droplets out of his utility belt or something. And, and all of a sudden, they're humans again. But it's a silly scene, but it's representing something important. Your body is mostly made out of water. Which is why you can't go long without water and live. You need food to live. But if we all got locked up and couldn't eat for a month, most of us could survive that. It would hurt. We'd be very sick and weak. But we could survive even a month, perhaps, without food. But if we go even a day without water, we're going to be in bad shape. Much longer than that, most of us are going to die, especially if we happen to be out in the wilderness like David was. Your body needs water to live. And that's why, by God's grace, you were given this natural impulse, desire, experience called thirst, which is the pain that you experience when your body lacks the water that it needs to live. Now, I I just find thirst as pain. Just a little thirsty may not be that unpleasant, and the experience of having thirst quenched may outweigh that pain and feel pleasurable to us. But some of us have experienced what it's like to be out in the heat mowing a lawn or leading a kid's Bible study in a hot 110 degree Oklahoma summer when you forget to bring your water bottle with you, and there's nothing fun about that, is there? It's pain. It's pain. And 
the experience of pain was much more significant for them than for us. Because for us, even if we had that experience, theoretically, we can get a car and drive to Sonic Happy Hour or go back to the house and turn on the sink. We got water everywhere. We got plumbing. We got pipes. We're living in the developed world in the 21st century. We've got lots of clean water. But in David's cultural context, if you get very thirsty, you might not be able to find water soon. And if you don't, in a few hours, it might be the entrance of life and death. So this is pain and it's scary pain. But this scary pain, hear this, this is important. This scary pain is, in fact, a gift from God because it alerts you to your urgent need for that which will give you life. If you didn't experience that natural, painful desire for water, then you would die of dehydration. When we feel the pain of thirst, it reminds us, I got to go get water and I got to go get it fast or else I'm going to die. It's a natural desire. It's a natural bodily function that helps keep us alive. Now, what does it mean then to talk about a thirsty soul? Here's what it means. Much more than your soul needs water, your soul needs God. More specifically, apparent absence of God. I say apparent because God's never really absent, is he? God is everywhere all the time. And his steadfast love never fails. He loves you all the time, whether you feel like he loves you or not. He cares about you all the time, even when your circumstances seem to scream that he doesn't care. He's with you, even when you have no physical or emotional or spiritual or mental awareness of his presence. So everybody say, God is with me. But that truth, as important as it is, has got to be held in tension with this other truth, frequently attested in Scripture, that often we feel like God isn't with us. And those feelings are very real. Let me emphasize this point to you by telling you this metaphor of soul thirst is a repeated metaphor throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, I would suggest it's a major biblical theme that you need to understand if you want to understand the Christian spiritual life. Let me just read to you two of the examples from Psalms. Where this metaphor of soul thirst comes up. First one may be familiar for some of you. Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 3 says this. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? You see, when people talk about having thirsty souls in the Bible, they're not talking about a happy experience. They're talking about pain. My tears are my food every day. Why are the people saying, where is your God? Because the psalmist is going through a circumstance in which it seems like God is nowhere. What about Psalm 143? Listen to verses 6 and 7. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. That phrase, hide not your face from me, it's another common biblical theme. When God hides his face in the Bible, means that even though God is everywhere, it feels like God is not with me. It feels like he's abandoned me and he's hidden himself from me. And his grace has been removed. So we got to face the fact that in the Christian life, There are going to be periods of time in which we experience the joy 
of feeling and knowing that God is near. Amen. But there's also probably going to be times in our life in which our faith is tested. In which it feels like God is totally absent. And we need to know what to do in those times. Now, there are many reasons why God might feel absent. Another way to say this, there's many reasons why you might feel that God has hidden his face. Another way to say this is, there's many reasons you might go through a spiritually dry time that is painful. I'm going to mention to you five reasons, and if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to jot these down because... When you go through these periods of time, it's important to think about why so you can discern what's happening spiritually. Here's real quick five. I don't know that these are the only five, but here's at least five reasons you might experience this pain, which feels that God is absence. First of all, soul thirst may be the deep, painful, confusing desire that unbelievers feel because they are alienated from God because of sin. People that haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, who are living in their sin, may not know how to name it, but their souls are thirsty for God. If you want an example of this, look at John chapter 4, in which Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman. She'd lived a, a sinful life. She was an outcast. She had been taught some of God's word, but was very spiritually confused. And yet when Jesus sees her, he speaks to her. He loves her. He initiates a relationship with her. And one of the things he very quickly says in this conversation is if you knew who I am, who's talking to you, you would ask me and I would give you living water and you would never thirst. And as the conversation unfolds, it's clear that Jesus is saying to her, I want to save your soul to forgive your sins and restore your relationship with God. So if you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, and but you know there's a deep ache and a longing in your soul for something bigger and better and more satisfying, the biblical answer is what you need is God. And you can find relationship with God, reconciliation with God through trusting Jesus Christ. Here's a second reason you might have this experience. Soul thirst can be the healthy, everyday experience of Christians who long for the deeper intimacy with Jesus that they will enjoy in heaven. The normal, healthy Christian life is a thirsty life. Everybody say soul thirst. When I'm talking about soul thirst, one of the things that that might mean is that a normal, healthy Christian life is a life that says, I love God, I enjoy God, I have joy in God, but I want more of God. Think about Paul in the book of Philippians. Uh, Philippians is a book all about joy. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says he has joy in every circumstance. In Philippians 3, he says that his experience of knowing Christ has been so deep and rich that everything else is like garbage compared to his experience of knowing Jesus. And yet, back in Philippians 1.23, when he's saying he, he might die soon, he says, I desire actually to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. I enjoy knowing Jesus, but I'm going to have a much greater relationship with Jesus. This is what Hebrews 13, 14 is talking about when it says here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. I want a deeper experience of joy and intimacy with Jesus. A third cause of spiritual dryness could be this soul thirst could be the painful experience of the Christian whose fellowship with God has been interrupted due to sin. God never stopped loving you. You didn't cease to be justified and forgiven and accepted to God's 
family, you're a Christian, but you've disobeyed God. And now you're experiencing the pain of that hindered relationship with God. A great place to go for this is Psalm chapter 51. David had just committed the greatest sin of his life. He had abused his power in a way that profoundly hurt other people. God is angry. God sends the prophet Nathan to rebuke David. And when David repents, God ultimately forgives him, but he goes through a period of intense discipline. And one of the things he prays in Psalm 51 during that period is restore to me the joy of your salvation. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. He was experiencing spiritual dryness because of sin. And if you're here and your relationship with God is messed up and you know that you're living in unrepentant sin, run back to the cross. Come back to Jesus so he can restore your soul. There's a fourth reason, which is what's happening in Psalm 63. Spiritual dryness, soul thirst can be the experience of intensely painful circumstances that make it hard for believers to feel that God is near them. That's what's going on with David in this psalm. There's no indication that he's being rebuked for his sin. He's trusted in Jesus. But what's happening is he's out in the desert going through an intensely painful family crisis and his life is at risk. And his circumstances are so painful that being a frail human being, he's like, God, where are you? I can't feel you. Now, there's lots of different ways this can happen. It can happen during grief when a loved one has passed. Lots of people who have been through trauma, which is probably one out of three of us in here. If you've been through intense trauma in your life, it may be hard for you to experience intimacy at times. And sometimes that might be spiritual intimacy. And you might start beating yourself up for that and feeling unspiritual. And I just want to say you don't have to. You're experiencing the pain of life in a fallen world. But God, is he loves you and he's with you even when you don't feel his presence. He's not mad at you for that pain. It could be physical sickness. It could be emotional sickness. It could be the experience of depression, physiological depression. That leads to this. But there's just painful circumstances that you're going through. Don't feel guilty about that. We're just acknowledging the fact that sometimes when you're in those circumstances, it's hard to feel like God's with you and God loves you. The fifth reason you might feel soul thirst is something that is of a different category altogether. And it's what Christian spiritual writers have frequently called the dark night of the soul. The dark night of the soul is the spiritual crisis, which is part of the soul's journey to union with God, which has been experienced by many great saints throughout the ages. Sometimes people say the dark night of the soul just to mean they're going through hard circumstances or a depressing period of their life. But that's not what the dark night of the soul means in traditional Christian spiritual thought. It means specifically a a person who's seeking God and who's pursuing God. And now they've entered a period In which God, in his wisdom, has withdrawn the comforting awareness of his presence to teach them a spiritual lesson and to take them deeper so they can learn to trust him. Instead of just resting in the experience. That is not a discipline from God. As a matter of fact, in the Christian tradition, it's most frequently described by people whose lives were totally devoted to God. Now, that's five reasons you might experience soul thirst. There's a lot of reasons. And I want to say that. This experience of spiritual dryness, far from being an indication that you're a fake Christian and you should give up because you're not real and everybody else at church feels spiritually intimate and close to God and you don't. It's just part of the Christian life. We've got to name this because 
I just want to tell you, as a pastor, here's one of the things that you learn when you talk to people. Every single Christian goes through extended periods in which they feel far from God, in which they feel like a fake. And one of the things that keeps them discouraged in those time periods is they come to church and they think everybody else is experiencing deep spiritual joy and intimacy with God all the time. So everybody look around the room. I want you to take comfort. All of these people are just messed up, just messed up as you are. All of them are suffering. And they may not even be messed up. But even if they're doing everything right, they could be going through a dark night of the soul. Martin Luther, great Protestant reformer who emphasized the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God, went through frequent periods of spiritual depression in which he said things like this. Here's a quote. God often, as it were, hides himself and will not hear, yea, will not suffer himself to be found. But Luther later found that those periods of depression, which for him, he described them as spiritual attack. They were probably also connected to a physical, physiological issue of depression that he had. But for him, what those periods of darkness and depression led him to do was to cling to the promises of God and to trust God's word, not his emotions. C.S. Lewis, one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century, who wrote frequently about God's grace and faithfulness, went through a deep period of depression after the wife, the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. And in his book, A Grief Observed, wrote about trying to pray while he was grieving. And listen to what he says. This is disturbing, but maybe comforting if you felt this way. Lewis says this, go to God. This is written in his diary, later published during a period of great grief. Go to God when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It may be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? It seemed so once. And that seeming was as strong as this. What can this mean? Why is he so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so absent a help of time in time of trouble? It's a deep lament from a heart of a grieving man. This did not break his faith. This didn't break his faith. He wrestled with tremendous doubts, but he came out of that. And many biographers would, would argue, and I would agree, spiritually stronger and wrote again about God's faithfulness. Last one last example here before I move on and quickly, I'm talking about a diagnosis here, but I'm going to spend the last few minutes talking about a prescription. What do we do? But I want to give you one example, historical example of a modern saint who went through what we describe as the dark night of the soul. And it's it's Mother Teresa. Many of you will know the life of Mother Teresa, a life devoted to prayer and the service of the poor. Early in her life, in her 30s, she had a profound experience of God speaking to her and encouraging her to pursue Jesus and to pursue caring for the poor. But then, shortly thereafter, she wrote in a letter to her spiritual director, In my soul, I feel just the terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. Now, that's normal. But what was very unusual in Mother Teresa's case, we only learned when her letters were published after her death, is that for her, this extended not for weeks or months, which would be more like the normal experience of great saints, but for decades. uh, With only brief periods of profound experiences of God's presence until the end of her life. 
Father James Martin, the Catholic writer, wrote this about Mother Teresa. When she was in her mid-thirties, she experienced a rare spiritual grace, actually hearing the voice of God. This prompted her to devote her entire life to the poorest of the poor. But just a few years later, that closeness to God evaporated almost entirely. For the following decades, until her death at age 87, she worked with the poor, founded a religious order, and traveled around the world preaching God's love without any interior experience of God's presence. It is this fidelity to her original call, this willing to carry out her ministry without any spiritual support that I believe makes her the greatest saint of modern times. What is he what is he saying here? He's saying that part of what made Mother Teresa such a great example for us was not that she experienced a daily profound happy sense of God's presence, but that she trusted God and acted in love and relied upon her love through extended periods of feeling like God was absent when her soul was thirsty in a dry land. She eventually came to see those experiences as a gift in which she was able to participate in the experience that Jesus had in Mark 15:34, when he cried out on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And through fellowshipping with Christ and his suffering, she came to know the heart of God and the experience of suffering people. Why do I spend so much time dwelling on this theme? I spend it to say, friends, if. If. David and Martin Luther and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and Jesus went through periods of profound spiritual dryness and experienced the absence of God. Maybe we're not immune to that. Which means spiritual maturity means recognizing when I feel dry, that does not mean God has ceased to be faithful. When my soul hurts, that does not mean that God's steadfast love has failed. When I don't feel like God is near, Jesus is still Emmanuel, who suffered on the cross for me and rose again. The Holy Spirit still dwells within me, and I need to learn what to do about it. So I'm going to real quickly, in a few minutes, just give you a few pointers. What does the psalm teach us about what to do when our soul is thirsty? Well, verses 2 through 4 teach us the active discipline of remembering God's track record of steadfast love in our lives. Look real quick at these verses. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is in the desert, feeling like God is absent, but he's remembering. I've had moments that were different than this. I've had moments where I was at the temple and I was worshiping God and I knew he was real and he was powerful and he's good. And I need to know that he, that's still who he is, even if I can't feel it today. Verse three, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. I'm going to worship you. I'm going to pray as long as I live, no matter what my circumstances are, no matter what my internal experience is. Why? Because I know your steadfast love is real and that it's better than life itself. I would rather die today in the steadfast love of God than live 50 years prospering apart from the steadfast love of God. Christian, what David is teaching us to do is when we get discouraged, don't give up. Don't just go into self-pity. Practice the discipline of actively remembering the fact that God has never failed you. How much does God love you? The son of God became flesh and died on the cross for your sins. 
and rose again. And if God loved you enough to die for you before you ever had a thought of trusting him, he's not going to abandon you now. And then we need to do the Psalm 103 thing, which is uh, forget not all his benefits and just start thinking. Maybe we should have somebody testify right now. Has God paid anybody's bills in your life? Has God ever forgiven you? You did something really dumb and the consequences should have been much worse, but God spared you. Has God ever heard your prayers and answered your prayers? Remember his steadfast love. It's better than life. Verse five reminds us that the pain of thirst will surely give way to the joy of satisfaction. Why do you have this experience? Why does every Christian at some level have this experience if we're healthy? We have this experience because it reminds us, this pain reminds us we were made for something more, but God is going to give us that something more. Namely, God's going to give us himself. Look at verse 5. My soul will be satisfied. That's the opposite of thirst. And this doesn't mean I'm just going to get a little sip from a Dixie cup. There's going to be a feast. Look what he says. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you on my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. He's not even looking to heaven. David's just confident. I've experienced the satisfaction of enjoying you before and I will again because you're faithful. Now, why do, why do we have that steadfast hope? We have that steadfast hope because our confidence isn't based on our circumstances, but on the promises of God. I'm going to give you three promises of God to jot down. And you might want to memorize these to cling to them. First, Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. God says, if you want me to satisfy your soul, the only requirement is that you come to me thirsty and bankrupt. Just come to me and I promise I will satisfy you. Matthew 5, 7. Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What is Jesus saying? He's saying the normal experience of Christian discipleship is the pain of I want my relationship with God to be perfect. I want to be free of temptation and sin. I want the world to be free of all this evil and brokenness everywhere. Oh, God, when will things be set right? I want God and I want the new creation. And what Jesus says to disciples of Christ like you and me, it's good that you want that. That shows that you're mine and everybody who wants it will get it. That's the promise. What about John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, come to Jesus. Come to his cross if you want your soul satisfied. He continues let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Pop quiz. Did it say whoever obeys all my commandments perfectly and devotes their life for caring for the poor and never misses a quiet time? Is that what it said? It says whoever believes in me. So are we justified by works of the law? No, we're justified by faith in Jesus. Just believe Jesus is the son of God who died on the cross for your sin. And rose again and trust yourself to him. And then John says, now this is he about the spirit or, or this. Sorry, he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you trust in Jesus, the spirit of God will come to live inside of you to 
satisfy your soul and to prepare you for complete satisfaction in heaven. We need to set our hopes not on our feelings, not on our circumstances, but on the promises of God. Finally, verse 8 teaches us that we must cling to God and trust his right hand to uphold us. Look at verse 8. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, we need both halves of that verse. We need both halves of that verse. My soul clings to God. You've got a responsibility here. What does it mean for my soul to cling to God? Or that could be translated to follow hard after God. It means think about God. It means meditate upon God's goodness. It means earnestly seek God. It means pray. It means read our Bibles. It means gather together with other Christians to celebrate the gospel and to worship God, even when our circumstances are hard. We're supposed to do that stuff. But I think the second half of this verse is the much more encouraging one. Look at what he says. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those two go together. My soul clings to God is the spiritual discipline of faith. And it's the discipline I've spoken of uh, several times over the years when I've read this quote from one Scottish preacher. Let me read it to you again. This is about spiritual maturity, the kind of maturity that we were describing earlier through some saints like Luther and Lewis and Mother Teresa who learned to trust God through pain. But here's what the quote says. That man is perfect in faith who comes to God in the utter dearth of feelings and desires without a glow or an aspiration with the weight of low thoughts, failures, neglects and wandering forgetfulness and says to him, thou art my refuge. What does that mean? The real mark that you're spiritually mature is not the days when you get up and have a quiet time and you open your Bible. And by the time you read the third verse, it feels like heaven opens up and you're filled with joy and you're singing and feel so good. That's wonderful. I wish that happened more often. Don't you love those days? Those are good days. But the real mark of maturity is those weeks and months when you open up your Bible and it feels like nothing happens. But you say, God is my refuge and you keep obeying. That's the mark of mature faith. My soul clings to you. But here's what I want you to think about. Where does your security really come from? Is it that your soul clings to God or is it that his right hand upholds you? The right hand of the Lord is a frequent biblical metaphor for God's strength. The reason that you're secure is not because of the strength of your grip, but the strength of God's right hand. Everybody say the right hand of the Lord. That's what saves you. That's what David's talking about in verses 9 through 11. Those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. That's not because David's so spiritual or so strong. It's because God is strong and God is just and we can trust in his faithfulness. As I was reflecting upon this this week, uh, here's the story that kept coming to my mind or the the memory that kept coming to my mind. I've had a a lot of kids, a lot of kids, (laughs) and uh, I love to carry my kids. I love to hold them and. I can think of various times when they were small, two, three, four. They're still two, three, and five at this point, and eight, ten, newborn. But when they were about that age, two, three, or four, that I'd be carrying one of my children, and they were feeling happy, they were feeling good, and then some, something scary happens. Maybe it was a big dog runs by, and they feel scared. Or maybe we start going down some steps, and they feel scared. Now, they have a natural instinct in that moment. What do they do? They cling to me. They grab me. And that's important. That's good. It gives them stability and especially it helps them to feel better. But I want you to think about this. If they cling to me with their little three-year-old grip 
and I let go, uh, how long are they going to be able to hold on? Not very long. I watched a YouTube video yesterday where all these really buff guys were trying to do a dead hang from a pull-up bar for two minutes and couldn't do it. And I tried it, and we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but it, that's, I'm grown, I'm 35. <laughs> I'm a grown man, right? But a little three-year-old is not going to be able to hold on for very long. The security is not in his little grip or her little grip. The truth is if she or he let go, they would fall instantly. But they are safe and secure because I'm holding them by my right arm. And what the text is saying is this. Your soul may feel dry. You may feel scared. And you need to practice that spiritual discipline of believing the gospel, seeking God's face, clinging to him. But you are secure. And the reason you're secure is not because you're so strong, but because you serve a God who loved you enough to die for you and was strong enough to raise again. The right hand of the Lord will uphold you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder of your grace and faithfulness this morning. And as I think about this church family, I love this church family. I know there's a lot of people hurting. I also know this is a church of servants and evangelists. This is a missional church. And if we're going to fulfill the work that you've called us to do, share the gospel in our community and mentor kids and educate and care for the widow and the fatherless and the orphan and all these good things you've given us to do, we're going to need longevity. We're going to need resilience. And there's going to be times in which it's hard, in which our souls feel dry as a bone. And I just want to pray for your grace that when our souls are thirsty, we wouldn't do that which Jeremiah the prophet rebuked Israel for doing, digging broken cisterns that cannot hold water. But instead, we would cling to you, the fountain of living waters.